0: In this interview, I'm joined by anthropologist and scholar practitioner, Dr. Ben Joffe. We discuss how Ben's early interest in Western occultism led to him becoming a professional tarot reader at 11 years old and to engage in rigorous self-study of magical disciplines. We learn how Ben taught himself the Tibetan language and follow him to India and Nepal, where he carried out his doctoral fieldwork among the Nagpa community in exile. Ben reveals the methodological and ethical challenges of being both a scholar and a practitioner and recalls the significance of meeting the man who would later become his teacher and mentor, Dr. Nida chenetsan So, without further ado, Dr. Ben Joffe. Dr. Ben Joffe, thank you for coming on the podcast. Yes, thanks for having me. And may I congratulate you on the recent completion of your dissertation and that we can now call you Dr. Ben Joffe. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad it's over. It took a while. <laughs> I'd love to delve into your research work and really get into the nitty-gritty. But I thought initially we'd look at your biography and as well as a sort of overview and some of the methodology that you employed in the process of your research. And I know that you had an early interest in the esoteric and were, for example, reading tarot cards professionally at the age of 11. Could you take us back to that time and give us a sense of what it was that sparked your interest and how that interest unfolded in those early days.
1: Sure, um, I, yeah, I mean, one can use the term professional tarot card reader, but as, as you know with these things, uh, there's hardly a kind of board of review. I, if I use the term professional tarot card reader, I usually use it to indicate that I will, you know, I'm reading for clients and I'm offering my services as someone with experience. So I, I was, in fact, doing that at the age of from the age of 11 or so. Um, how I got into that, I, I don't know. I mean, cliched as it is, I guess I was a, a strange kid. I, I didn't have a particularly religious or spiritual upbringing at all. My uh, father is a, is a kind of mild-mannered atheist Jew, and, and my mother has never particularly been affiliated or interested in any Sort of religious tradition, um, but thankfully my parents were uh, kind enough to sort of be flexible and supportive of my interests, which emerged very early. I think I had a, a strong sense from from very early on in my life of other realities, of spiritual forces and influences. Growing up in South Africa, too, uh, we're such a E- ethnically, culturally, linguistically, religiously diverse country, um, and so I think that also helped to expose me to a lot of alternative cosmologies and and ways of being. Uh, uh, ritual specialists and 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 uh, ev- e- everyday interactions with spirits are, are very much a part of the fabric of life in South Africa for many different kinds of South Africans. So my parents. Uh, I guess they saw even before I did as clearly that I was uh, interested in the esoteric, the occult. I was trying to make sense of what, for the want of a better word, you could call spiritual experiences, um, uh, visionary encounters that sort of happened without much context. And um, uh, when I was about 10 or 11, my maternal grandmother, who I was very close with, and who I think always sort of, she herself wasn't deeply involved in the study of, of esoteric traditions, uh, witchcraft or anything like that, but I think she sort of styled herself a witch. She was an unconventional woman for her time, and she she saw my interest and sort of hoped that maybe I could uh, pick it up. And, and, and so her, her and my parents, um, Sort of around the age of 10, they sort of realized like, oh, okay, he's into this kind of thing. We don't know much about it. But my parents bought me books on Western occultism, esotericism, uh, ritual magic. Um, my mother and maternal grandmother bought me a pack of tarot cards, which I still use today, actually. Uh, I have, I've had them with me for over 22 years, and I, they're still the, the primary deck I use to, to uh, divine with for clients. Um, and yeah, I, I just, it, something clicked, um, read one book about tarot, um, it just felt right. I started reading according to the instructions that were there and um, uh, it's, it seemed to be effective. Um, I, I, my first stint as a reader was actually at a, at a kids, we had a, a, a kids TV network in South Africa, KTV and to sort of stimulate the entrepreneurial spirit and children, they would have this uh, annual thing in different cities where you could apply for a a stall or you sort of pitched a business. So we pitched sort of, I guess, woo. We pitched general woo. (laughs) My mother and sister sold herbs and candles and sort of vaguely holistic items just as a background feature to me a trestle table reading for clients who came up and you know i i was doing this very naively i i was just following the instructions that i had learned and going along with it and asking people whether it was useful or relevant and they said yes and they said can we see you again and so this led to me working at a flea market in my hometown Uh, uh, I, i was charging a pittance you know i was i was charging a couple of cents i wasn't learning to extort uh, impressionable desperate people. I, I was really doing it more for my own interest and then at that time, and it seemed like it benefited people. So I, I continued and have done so. Um, and I think as I got older, um, what started to happen is I realized, <laughs> oh, not everyone, not all adults, all children for that matter, credit what I'm doing. Um, not all of them have had experiences that I have had. They don't feel the presence of spiritual forces in the same way that I had, um, and so I think that that instilled in me an early kind of relativism. Uh, I was also surrounded by a, a, a wonderful uh, c- collection of, of characters, of surrogate parents, because you know, I would spend hours in this in this fleet, open air flea market. Mm-hmm. Um, Initially, I was by myself uh, in the middle of nowhere with a trestle table and a sign. And then um, I made uh, contact with uh, a a group of women who ran a crystal uh, store, they sold incense and I guess they were, generally speaking, new age. Um, And they all had their own affiliations. And then through clients that I saw and people I met who came to the to the table, I was just had a very early, very uh, intimate sort of human uh, introduction to, I guess, what you could call alternative uh, spirituality, new religious movements, uh, any any range of things. I began to do big holistic fairs, esoteric fairs, you know, exhausting uh, situations where you read for people alongside other readers and vendors for hours and hours. And um, as time went on, I started to also realize what my own interests were. Um, uh, Tara, I always say Tara was kind of a, a, a passport for me into all kinds of domains. Uh, South Africa is a strange place to be an occultist. Uh, we are one of the few countries other than I think uh, um, Saudi Arabia that has had or still technically has a state supported occult crimes unit. Um which in the name of uh, uh, mainstream uh, uh, religious dogma roots out um, alternative and satanic um, spiritual activities and influences. So growing up as a kid and even finding information in the in the 80s late 80s and early 90s in uh, South Africa about occultism required you know building networks and Sort of a lot of self-education and care. I, I still recall asking to see this, uh, you know the the three poultry books on you know Reiki and and, and and divination that were in sort of uh, um, the you know the newsstand whatever uh, uh, a sort of breathless pearl clutching Afrikaans uh, auntie having to ex- receive a key from the back and open a <laughs> open a um, a cupboard behind the counter to, to show me the one pack of terracotta. You know, I mean, it was still like that. It started changing as I was growing up. But I guess I, I just read voraciously and I experimented and, and I met other people. And over the years I had mentors. Uh, uh, I became interested probably uh, in my tweens and neo paganism, um, various forms of modern witchcraft. Uh, And so I met with the small but uh, vibrant communities that were in South Africa and had various mentors in in that uh, area. Um, But I was also meeting so many other people, you know, um, uh, aura healers, uh, Reiki masters, uh, Wiccan high priestesses, alien abductees, contactees, Traditional South African spirit mediums and shamans and, and healers uh, um, Christian mystics spiritualists Satanists vampires <laughs> um, So I could see that like me all of these people had uh, You know, they had no reason to be lying about their experiences, you know sometimes there were real signs of mental illness or um you know, like uh, uh, certain psychologies that always draw people to the to magic and the occult. But for the most part, through my clients and and colleagues and friends, I could see that these were genuine people used to being ridiculed, struggling to make sense of their spiritual lives outside of maybe standard and often quite unforgiving, the sort of dominant frameworks and narratives. So, I guess it made me so op- open and interested in so many things, but it also made me more sort of critical. I was like, well, all these people seem very sincere, but not all of their claims or arguments or sources are are equivalent. I started reading a lot and I, I, I learned very early on how I guess to be an anthropologist, to be yeah. a scholar um, about these things. And I had some exposure to Buddhism, um, is a small but uh, very significant and active Buddhist community in South Africa, mostly white, uh, upper-middle-class South African converts. Um, you know, both Tibetan Buddhism and other forms of Buddhism. And I'd had some early exposure to that in mean, Tibetan uh, Tantric Buddhism, Indo-Tibetan Vajrayana, came a bit later. And it was mostly because I started becoming more specifically interested through neo-paganism in What's often called the Western magical tradition or kind of contemporary modern ritual magic. Um, and, you know, a lot of that, like terror itself, uh, owes its uh, ideas and preferences to kind of Victorian Europe, uh, Victorian England, um, drawing on older sources. And, um, you know, especially because of the influence of theosophy and the development of the New Age. So much of that, you could say, is kind of a Western esoteric take, a misreading, even a distortion or reworking of uh, of Indian Tibetan religious ideas. So it was quite interesting. I I wasn't actively pursuing an interest in, in Buddhism or, or Tibetan esotericism for many years, but when I did start to look at primary sources, I realized that I'd been Absorbing so much information, or 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 sort of distorted forms of uh, Vajrayana or uh, um, Hinduism, Buddhist Buddhist philosophy, and so on, through Western occult uh, sources, and and that was really interesting to me. I hadn't appreciated the extent to which there was that relationship, and um, yeah, I can I can explain more specifically about how I ended up becoming an anthropologist, who studied Tibetan uh, culture and religion in exile. That sort of happened at a particular moment.
0: That's fascinating. So you alluded there to certain sorts of spiritual experiences in your youth, visionary experience, and also a capacity to feel spiritual forces. So I'm curious if you could comment on some of the specifics there. And also in many of the Western esoteric traditions, Certain people come to mind, like the OTO or Franz Barton, people like that. There is a graded system of mind training. I'm wondering if you ever engaged through your mentors and your own study in any structured mind training, uh, the, the sort of which you would encounter then later in Buddhism.
1: Yeah, I, actually, this is great. Give me one second. I want to show you something. So you mentioned uh, the uh, uh, German-speaking hermeticist Franz Barden uh, my uh, personal uh, Tibetan teacher, uh, Dr. Nida Chenatsang, who I'm sure will will speak of more, he actually just gave me these books, which is so funny because uh, they were one of the primary manuals that I worked with as a, as a kid, um, and now that I know more, I, I can actually see what I believe to be a, a, a direct influence of Tibetan Buddhism on, on many of, uh, maybe direct, you know, uh, I need to, to be careful about that word but there's clearly influence that Byron himself acknowledged um, and I think he was getting it from the milieu in which he was in um, but yeah absolutely um, it's to answer your question uh, I think when I was very young I was just like most kids You know, most kids are sensitive to subtle spiritual forces before they have any sort of cultural uh, or even familial or personal frameworks for making sense of that I was in a unique position because By and large, I, I mean, I haven't done have the stats for you, but I would say that the It's always interesting to look at the kind of like demographic patterns of involvement in alternative spirituality, you know, you often hear about the the Jew uh, the sort of preponderance of, of, of well-educated uh, nice Jewish kids in in Western Dharma, uh, American Buddhism, and so on, Um, of course, they're not the only demographic, but in occultism, Western occultism, and especially these very sort of Tantra uh, influenced forms of it, like left hand path traditions, and so on, many people come to these practices because they're Christian. um, And because they had kind of traumatic Christian upbringings, which they are responding to, I I had no (laughs) Uh, religious upbringing, bar what we got from school and just living uh, in a uh, Christian-centric country, but uh, yeah, I guess when I was a kid, you know, I had a lot of dreams and as I got a bit older, there would be moments, I can remember very specific events, you know, very specific, uh, I had one very dramatic uh, visionary encounter just in my room. (laughs) Uh, unprovoked by any, unsolicited, with Jesus, what what appeared to be Christ, and which was an overwhelming experience that made me, you know, I, I often bring it up to people to sort of, to to convey my orientation to these things. I think I was maybe like eight or nine. I can't quite remember. I wish I had written it down, like I subsequently started doing as part of Crowley influenced. Ritual magic, you know, you have a magical diary. You do daily exercises and meditations. And you write down your results. It's sort of this uh, empirical approach. Um, and uh, but you know, this early encounter, it just sort of happened. And uh, and I was in a cathedral suddenly for no particular reason. I think I'd been meditating. I don't think I don't know if I even knew that word yet, but. Um, I was in a cathedral and there was a, a very palpable mood of sort of awe and, and slight danger and there's a giant image of, of, a, of an open-armed Christ um, in stained glass and then the mood sort of intensified and, and hundreds of white owls broke through the glass fla- flap, flapping everywhere and there was just blinding light um, that came through the sort of Kind of crude outline of Christ, and that light I understood was, was what that picture was of, um, and I felt an overwhelming sense of, uh, of bliss and peace and just at co- a level of 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 boundless compassion that was so overwhelming that I, I wept and I I, I fell down on the ground and I was like, what do I do with this? Um, so I actually said the Lord's Prayer, because in my supposedly secular government school, we still went to assemblies where we would sing d- a different variety of, of Christ- Christian hymns. Um, later they, my school was half Indian, South African, but half the population was Hindu. But later we they, they even tried to introduce some Hindu songs, uh, because they realized it was not constitutional to have us only sing these. but um, I said the Lord's Prayer with deep, you know, earnest feeling, because I was like, "Well, this is a, a I guess this is Jesus. <laughs> I really believe it." Um, but you know, after that, I sort of wiped the tears away and and I I, I I put that in my back pocket and I went downstairs to dinner. I didn't tell my parents about it. I actually, didn't tell anyone about it um, for many years. But I never became a Christian. I already knew I didn't want to. <laughs> Um, I had enough exposure to Christianity, to I was just not interested. Of course, I was studying Christian mysticism later on, quite moved by it. But um, I guess it, those sorts of experiences, especially in the absence of a family, who could say like, oh, you met Jesus? Like, psyched, we're into this. Or like, uh, you need to see a psychiatrist. There was, there was none of that. So for me, it was more just, it instilled in me a sort of interest in like, what is this? What is my mind doing? And then through clients and other people, they're also telling me, I talk to angels, I know Jesus, uh, aliens um, steal my body fluids. And and so I was like, okay, well, what is all this? Like, I can't dismiss these people and their experiences when I'm also kind of in that boat with them, but I'm not about to just... Automatically say, okay, well, I met Jesus, so now I'm a prophet or I'm a Christian. It was never like that for me. It was always more like something's going on. How things look immediately on the surface, how we describe them culturally, um, they're relative, circumstantial, and they're one layer for for something else. So I guess I became a kind of uh, agnostic relativist even before my training as an anthropologist required that of me just for 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 sort of uh, rigorous scholarship because I was having these kinds of experiences and exposures. And then the, just to quickly touch on the, the last part of your um, uh, question, absolutely, yeah, once I became involved in... Uh, Sort of various forms of paganism and witchcraft, and then especially when I became involved in sort of golden dawn, uh, Crowley influenced ritual magic, I was, I had, I was doing rituals and meditations every single day throughout high school, um, and really beating myself up about about it too. You know, like diarizing this and always feeling like I should be cultivating my spiritual capacities more. Um, you know, now I feel like I was more disciplined, you know, I was getting up at 5 a.m. of my own volition, not with the mother telling me to, you know, do Barden's step one exercise, yogic exercises, of dousing myself with cold water and rubbing myself with a bristle brush and doing poor breathing. And I taught myself uh, hypnosis to use on myself and then I started uh, experimenting with using it on others. I, I was constantly reading and con- connecting with people and practicing. I was felt that I could be practicing more. I worked mostly by myself, though. Occasionally, I had mentors, some were really creepy characters, especially for a kid, you know, um, but you, you know, like you find your way with the help of others, and um, uh, by yourself, but I was mostly by myself. I had a dream, I actually tried to join many Uh, Not I wouldn't say many, but two or three lodges, Western occult groups that were abroad, mostly in the UK, because I I yearned for, you know, structure and a teacher who could say, like, you know, I'm going to follow your progress and, you know, so that I wasn't just doing it by myself because I wanted structure and constancy and mentors that I could count on. And I was too young. Most of the, I was like 15, 16, most of them told me, we don't we don't allow anyone into our lodges that young um and and so they just said you know do your own study and and uh, yeah i didn't i didn't ever officially join until i became more involved in vajrayana i didn't officially initiate um into any group really um and then during my my 10-year phd period at least the beginning of it i um I sort of moved away both because of practicality and time but also i felt like i was sort of needed to challenge myself to be maybe more of a skeptical academic on my learning and others experiences and and i was still involved in practicing every day but not with the same naivete and and deep dedication and desire for adepthood that i had when i was like 12 to kind of 20. I've seen acad- this period of time in academia has really been sort of a-, a phase in my life where I stepped out of intensive personal practice and sort of took a meta view of my own experience. Um, now I feel like I'm coming out of that phase, actually. So it's interesting. Yeah. Anyway. So, so yeah, Barden, Barden is an old friend for sure, and I was following Crowley's advice to to, to keep a magical uh, diary and doing doing a hodgepodge of things. I think I always had sort of anxiety about the hodgepodge-ness of it all and yet was also quite thrilled by the experimental kind of, I don't know what's going on, I don't know what spurts are out there. Uh, I like the creativity and the freedom of it and yet there was always a part of me that that wished that I had something like a traditional structure and kind of uh, older sources because there's so much creativity and innovation and bald-faced lying and misrepresentation and uh, uh syncretism and it, in western occultism it, it the mind truly boggles um there's there are many pros and many cons to that i, I personally believe so um yeah that that was my experience
0: <laughs> amazing. Why do you think uh dr. Nida gave you that Franz barden book number one and number two, you know I think the uh th- this idea of the western occult traditions being something that has a progressive training. Uh, in 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 really things like the training of the mind training of the imagination training of concentration the sorts of things i think most people would associate with with buddhism but many aren't aware that that's in the western esoteric traditions
1: well this might get me in trouble but i would actually say that you know there's this there's this pattern that we see in western sort of tibetan buddhist dharma centers where uh, a visiting lama comes who has an incredible uh, wealth of training and knowledge, you know, having been brought up in a, in a society where this is encouraged and supported and institutionalized, who then provides a transmission. Maybe the resident translator translates the side in a text and the students get told, just, okay, <laughs> just do it. And I really think that a lot of Western occult I mean, often it's in the form of individual authors and sometimes lodges, although I hesitate to, yeah, it's lodges are a whole other story. But, um, you know, I mean, there are, there are training programs in the Western occult context which are far more explicit and clear for beginners, which really outline in very clear terms the theory and practice uh, of these methods. And it's not that that stuff doesn't exist in Vajrayana; it absolutely does, as part of oral and written lineage traditions. But it's often within the sort of structural space of um, uh, Western Dharma centers. It's just often not there for students, or easily accessible, or they need to learn Tibetan in order to get it, or have precious time with gurus who are not always available to kind of track their progress, or so. I, you know, as much as I may have given the impression of Western occult, the Western occult scene is just everybody doing what they like and making stuff up and declaring themselves authorities, and and um, uh, it's kind of a, a, a mess. There, you know, there is a, a level of, of of rigor and structure there too that sometimes, for various reasons, can be lacking for those who who might want it, like converts, non heritage Buddhists, or even Tibetan but it's to also may struggle to uh, unless they're apprentice to teach teacher and living very closely with them to sort of to, to get that.
0: That's right, and that's sort of my point. So I'm, my question is to you: is what experiences did you have, or what development did you notice when you were so immersed in that self-training as a teenager? And also footnote not to forget about the why did Nida give you the Franz Barton books?
1: Oh well, yeah, and you'll see this one here. It's a actually is the, the the cover i don't know that i have a friend who um uh is you know doing a lot of interesting publishing and, and scholarship around barden and his legacy i should ask her and her partner about this cover i actually don't know um who made this cover and why it features so many tibetan-like uh, images um but uh, it is very simple i was having a meeting with in new york recently after a dream yoga workshop that he gave um, at Tibet house and we were talking about future publication plans and um, I was recording some uh, Q&A with him for that purpose and he he said oh I saw a student of mine I think a European student of his who said I think there'd been a miscommunication because neither was under the impression that these were his books written by his student so I explained by the student who gave them to him, he said these are my books so I explained to Nida that, that Baden was long dead and told him a little bit about him and how I thought that he actually taught a, a kind of Vajrayana-like set of practices. Um, so Nida said to me, oh, well, you have them, you know about this, you like, do you want them? I mean, he, he, he wasn't, uh, uh, he decided that they'd be more useful to me uh, than to him. So perhaps uh, this is why, so that we could talk about them now. Um, but uh, yeah, oh yeah. I mean, I still recommend Biden's initiation into hermetics to people. Um, uh, in terms of what that kind of training did for me, well, yeah, it absolutely did. What it's what uh, like what's in Crowley, uh, Crowley's Liber O. You know, his sort of one of his most uh, practical manuals. Um, you know, I love his opening quote, you know, where he's just so thoroughly kind of modern, early, like modern occultism. You know, this sort of agnosticism, he says in this book, I speak of sephirot, of the tree of life. I speak of uh, astral planes and deities. Um, you know, it's, it's irrelevant whether any of these things actually exist or not. The point of these exercises is that when you do them, they have two results. If I paraphrase him now, he says... They widen the scope of the mind, and they strengthen the capacity and strength of the mind. And then he says, you know, if you do these exercises, you will have encounters. You will uh, inter, you know, you will you will amplify your uh, sensitivity to spiritual forces, uh, to spirits. You will have uh, mystical experiences of mystical union. You will develop your clairvoyance. You will uh, uh, improve your your you know. Uh, ability to have, have clear and prophetic dreams, or remember your dreams, or have lucid dreams, or many of the same kinds of things that we find in Vajrayana sadhana practice. Um, so yeah, when I you know it it's definitely true. And an anthropologist Tanya Lerman has spoken about this a lot because she also kind of did her PhD research by initiating agnostically into Western uh, witchcraft, Western ritual magic groups in the UK, and she's since kind of immersed herself in many different spiritual groups all without becoming a believer or wanting to become a believer but fascinated by this sort of transformative process that happens when uh, people engage with a a structured kind of spiritual discipline and she's written a lot about this and it's true what she says based on my own experience you know you the more you engage with these practices, the more they shape your experience. The more they 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 unfold latent capacities of body, emotion, and mind. Um, and uh, yeah, so I you know I can I can see because I had this sort of ten years sub- slight hiatus from regular daily practice and exploration. Um, where you know like i can see how being involved in that they, they fall off um to a certain degree you know people come to yoga and meditation and magic with pre-existing capacities or talents um, or none um, and then they develop them and refine them and then you can also it's not so much that those capacities disappear i'm i'm loath to say that they you know, because obviously the, the skeptical, sort of dismissive angle on this is, well, people see spirits and hear spirits or talk to God when they're in a community and doing practices uh, to, to induce those experiences. If they stop doing those practices, they won't have them. Um, yes and no. Um, what I've learned from my own life trajectory is that when you become less involved in the practices, it's a remarkable how easy it is to forget I would say it's remarkable how easy it is to like become like when you've been a lucid dreamer remembering dreams of dreams for years and years effortlessly um, and then you just get distracted with something else you suddenly find yourself living you know you don't even remember your dreams anymore there've been phases of my life where that happens so I, I know that I'm not not having dreams it's just really a question of attention and the cultivation and training of attention and and intention. Um, So I I don't want to say that these experiences are fabricated, that they're produced by these bizarre cultural activities that people opt into. Tanya Lerman herself sort of made that argument with her concept of interpretive interpretive drift, which has a lot of value to it, but it it didn't go down well in in the practitioner community. Um, because it was read as her sort of saying that spirits and magic aren't real they don't work you know a priori but if you do the practices you'll start to sort of feel like they do Um, and there is something very profound and important to that but i think that um, as someone who came to this sort of from without any context and had a lot of experiences spontaneously. It was because these experiences just happened that I then sought out the kind of structured practices and communities. And then through being involved with those, I also came to realize that regular practice does um, refine and unfold these kinds of capacities. And if you, it's possible also to kind of like completely focus your attention away from those things so um, yeah and I know from experience how grad school kind of overwhelmed me and um, you know how it, it, sometimes I'm like did all it, you know how how did I get from there to here but then all it takes is for me to just be like oh I'm not touching in with my body or oh I'm doing a meditation practice and I'm like all oh, right it's all it's all here all those capacities are still there it's just it's amazing it's really instructive how easy you know not not choosing to to train and focus one's attention in a particular way—that's its own kind of attention training. You know, we we choose. It's like in Buddhism, we choose to to attach ourselves to some interests, <laughs> to some sark uh, orientations, uh, and and we can also opt out of those too. Um, so, yeah, it's very interesting. I am really interested in the kind of this aspect of spiritual disciplines as you know practices that one actually has to invest in. I don't think they explain why people have quote unquote paranormal or experiences or supernatural spiritual encounters. They don't at all. We have you know an endless amount of, of material and anthropology and other disciplines to show that countless people have Spooky experiences, you know throughout their lives without anything like this um, So yeah, it's just it's um It's very interesting uh, that relationship though in terms of practice and it's one that that buddhists talk about a lot They're Like yeah, we all have the, the latent. We all have latent buddha nature and yet somehow so, so if everything is perfect and nothing needs to be done why are we doing so much shit all the time with such dedication? Why do we keep having to remind ourselves? Um, well, you know, that's a whole other question, but we do. Um, and it's not because, in my opinion, that it's untrue that there's really innate Buddha nature and that we're, we're sort of just fabricating this experience. No, it's about, it's about the boundless capacity for human beings to, to, to get distracted. And to not even realize what's always there right under their nose. So, um, yeah, that's that's kind of my take on
0: it. You've described your entry in, into the world of Tibetan studies as a nerd rebellion. So, can you sort of take us from before we go into your into the into the actual research period itself? Could you take us from what you know, living in South Africa and doing what you were doing there, to this nerd rebellion of entering Tibetan studies?
1: Um, Well, the reason I said that was specifically in relationship to how I became interested in studying Tibetan language. Um, So I think that, um, as I mentioned before, I I had some exposure to Buddhists and Buddhism uh, growing up in South Africa. Um, Actually, um, just for the record, my initial exposure to Tibet came from two places, and I think I must have been, yeah, about 11 when this, this happened. Um, uh, I knew a woman who was at the same flea market where I used to work, um, who studied sort of hermetic Kabbalah, and she was an artist, and she created these kinds of astrological, Kabbalistic-inspired tarot cards for their soul, basically. Very um, awesome stuff. But she had a husband who was a extremely dedicated uh, uh, to, Tibetan activist, and he actually was not a, a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner, which was sort of unusual, but he just he really uh, felt strongly about China's colonizing of Tibet and uh, gross human rights violations that have happened there and are happening there, um, and he was involved with the Tibet House that we actually have in South Africa, which is a bit unusual because you know there's a sort of preponderance of tibet houses it's kind of the system that developed through you know formal and informal uh, networks of support with uh, tibetan refugee communities and uh, the Dalai Lama's exile administration in the past where um uh the the central tibetan administration the um uh exile government if you like although terminology has changed um in recent years, they have these sort of de facto offices um, in in various sort of strategic locations around the world, but they also happen to have one in South Africa, um, which is a little strange because there's no sort of, there's no Tibetan, local Tibetan refugee population to speak of, like there is say, in the case of, you you know, the US or um, France or something like that. but there is this sort of fairly long-standing and, and dedicated uh, convert uh, population. Um, anyway, uh, my friend's husband had been involved with the Tibet House in, in its, that version of its, in, it's in, you know, that version of it. And I remember as a kid, like uh, talking to my friend and hearing him speak to the uh, officials at of Tibet House or seeing parcels that he'd received from India or something. And it sort of just was like, mm, okay, I knew nothing about Tibet, I wasn't trying to find anything out. And then I think um, around that time, I also read Lobsang Rampas, the third eye. I found it in um, So yeah, I was not sufficiently educated in Tibetan studies at that point to know that this biography of a, of a mystically endowed lama from Hassa was actually a kind of channeled text by a Scottish who'd never left the British Isles, who claimed his body had been possessed by uh, a Tibetan Lama who wanted to use him as a mouthpiece. And really, I didn't understand then either that most of what was in his book was theosophy and not really authentic Tibetan uh, history or, uh, or Buddhism. But uh, you know, so that was a little early exposure. But the nerd rebellion you spoke about came sort of towards the end of my uh, my honours year, my fourth year uh, at the University of Cape Town, I had done some sort of initial ethnographic fieldwork with neo-pagans in South Africa. And it had been a kind of strange experience, because even though I was working with groups who I didn't necessarily feel were doing the same practices as me, we were part of a shared family, and it was, to a certain extent, uh, an initial foray into auto-ethnography. my some of my professors found this deeply troubling some of them sort of revealed their own cosmological standpoints when they said is it a good idea for you to do research with people who practice magic what if it would be dangerous i recall when one professor said that she was the only one who fielded that possibility during the review of my research proposal in the department and others sort of looked at her like wait you actually believe the magic could work Um, So props to Um, others said, we don't know if it's healthy or safe for you to be involved with a community that's so close to you. So I'd had a strange experience doing that research. I had some pushback from people who felt I was too much of a scholar practitioner and that this was an issue. I don't really see that it ended up being one, but um, uh, it was an interesting moment. And I was unsure about whether I was even going to continue with academia, because I was sort of a little bit disabused after this experience. And um, uh, I become more interested in Buddhism and Vajrayana, started reading more. Um, It's one or two books. And then I love languages. I've learned many languages. And I remember I was procrastinating finishing a, um, a final paper or something like my last big a paper for my uh, a class, like a graduate-level class. And as I often do in these situations, I thought, well, this would be a great time to bury myself in something completely unrelated to this pressing task, but which is also really intellectually demanding and consuming. So this is what I call my kind of nerd rebellion. I, I, I got sort of this strong impulse, and I thought, I have to learn Tibetan. I was like, how the hell am I going to learn Tibetan? So I've never met a Tibetan. So I went to um, the university library and I found Sir Charles Bell's, like I think it's from the turn of the century, his colloquial Tibetan book. And I taught myself how to read and write Tibetan without ever having heard the language spoken. I didn't have regular internet access, so I couldn't just easily go on YouTube and even hear the language. Um, I remember when I ordered from a text... It still does, but it used to take forever to order a book from overseas to get through customs in South Africa. Um, I remember I finally got this Tibetan modern Tibetan textbook, and it had a CD, and I put it in the, the into my computer, and, and it had like a recording of a Tibetan speaking. And I thought, oh, shit, <laughs> this is what Tibetan sounds like? I had no idea. I mean, I could read already, like, you know, perfunctory sentences or whatever. Um, And I was like, oh crap, that is totally not what I thought it would sound like. Um, But then, you know, that then led me to become more interested in the history of Buddhist convert communities in South Africa. And I, I toyed with the idea of doing a master's through my anthropology department, looking at Buddhists in South Africa as a religious minority. And then my advisor had actually done research in India on witchcraft violence and accusations in India, uh, central India, and she said to me, how do you know there's not... She's like, I've had some encounters with Tibetan refugees in India. She's like, how do you know there's no Tibetans in South Africa? At the time, I'd forgotten about my lovely friend, who's since passed away, um, and his connection with Tibet House. And then I realized, oh, there is a, there is a, a office of Tibet in Centurion South Africa in Gauteng province with sort of two families of Tibetans and I made contact with them and I said I've become really interested in Tibetan exile politics and just the the prospect that that an entire nation could be erased from the map overnight by a colonial superpower and um, I said I'm beginning to learn Tibetan. I, I took a bus out um, and I met with the uh, representatives of the office um, and I said to them, you know, I'm thinking about doing a master's and I wonder if I might work with you, do field work with you and just learn about what it's like for you being here in Africana suburbia in the middle of South Africa after the Dalai Lama had been denied access for the first and subsequent, you know, that continues today, South Africa refuses to allow this holiness to visit get a visa. Um, so I was fascinated, I was starting to sort of give myself a crash course, I, the, the Tibetan language just started as a kind of procrast- procrastinatory impulse. Um, but, but you know, backed up by my kind of interest in Vajrayana that was slowly developing. And then I became really interested in Tibetans I knew as a someone who already had anthropological training that I didn't just want to learn about Buddhism and Buddhist philosophy from books. I didn't want to learn about Tibetan language as a hypothetical. I wanted to understand what it meant to practice Tibetan Buddhism as a convert and as a native Tibetan in the world today, in everyday life, given the social, cultural, political complexities of global Dharma, of of, uh, the Chinese occupation of Tibet, of the a scattering of, of refugee Tibetans in a in a diaspora over the last decades. Um, I, I wasn't foolish enough to think that one simply studies a language or becomes involved with a relig- religion outside of a, a socio-political co- historical context. Um, so it was really important to me that I, I just met Tibetans. And so I, I had a wonderful experience being invited into the world of these uh, de facto ambassadors for a de facto country in a far-flung outpost of the diasporic scene, uh, political network, social network. And, you know, I did the best I could, having a field site that was Tibetans in in South Africa, who may have even been the only Tibetans in the whole African continent. And I had a great experience doing that research. And I knew that I wanted to learn more about Tibetan studies through an anthropological lens. And so I I made contact with my my former advisor, who is a historian and anthropologist who specializes in in the study of exile Tibetan history and, and culture. And there's not a lot of anthropologists who have really sort of good expertise in Tibetan studies as well. You know, you often have to study Tibetan studies sort of through Buddhist studies or in a Tibetan studies department that maybe emphasizes texts over like anthropological sort of preferences of like everyday life and, and you know, culture and context and ethnography. So I, I did all the paperwork and I applied to the University of Colorado Boulder in 2010 and was accepted to work with this advisor, Dr. Carol McGranahan, and I've been in the US ever since. Um, and this led to my PhD, and completion of my PhD, and my current work. So um, I guess that should sort of get you up to speed. Yeah, but it did. I don't know if the nerd rebellion started it. Maybe it was my my dear friend's like phone call that day. I still remember. It's interesting. I don't. Um, at the time, I I, I I remember telling his wife, I really am interested in Tibet, but I, I didn't feel this urge to go up to him and say. Who are the Tibetans you were talking to on the phone, or what's this? I remember he received a, what looked like an ordinary envelope, but the inside of it had been had silk inside, and someone had sent him, I think, some texts, some religious texts, uh, just as a gift or something. I don't know. I remember thinking like, who could these people be that could could have sent a book like this? But it wasn't enough at the time to to make me. Um, take the path that I did to really decide, like, I'm going to leave South Africa for the first time in my life. And because I'm, I believe I need to study Tibetan language and learn about Tibetan Buddhism first, you know, by getting to know Tibetans in exile. And then I would then I said to myself, only then can you decide whether you might practice, you know, you need to know the you need to know about Tibetan Buddhism as something that is a community reality for for people. I always had that strong sense. I was like, I'm a non-Tibetan, potentially becoming involved in a, a spiritual tradition that is not exclusive to Tibetans, but does belong to them. Um, and that was always very clear in my consciousness. It still is. Um, and it's also been clear in my thinking in terms of how I, the sorts of things i have been interested in writing about as a scholar and thinking about as a scholar.
0: Seeing as you've brought that up, could you talk a bit about how your study of the Tibetan language unfolded, uh, both in terms of the timeline of your study and also in terms of the methodologies you found the most effective? Um, Well,
1: I I sort of knew that I'd reached a point where I needed to learn Tibetan language in in an immersive way. I couldn't just be reading textbooks on the beach in Cape Town while my friends laughed at me, muttering to myself in Tibetan or, or listening to recordings after having only met and interacted on a daily basis with like three Tibetans for for six months. Um, so I, I found ways to fund trips to, um, to India. My first visit to McLeod Ganj was in 2010 just after I completed my master's uh, at the University of Cape Town, I discovered that there was a bursary um, that uh, was available to students. Uh, You could be from any department. It was this old white lady who I can only assume was a dedicated theosophist who left a whole lot of money. And she, um, no, I mean, I say this not facetiously. I think from the evidence that I saw that she was a theosophist, or at least uh, affiliated Um, And she put aside this incredible, um, her family managed this, not a huge amount of money, but a small amount of money where it said any South African student at the University of Cape Town who wants to visit two Asian countries in order to learn about indigenous Asian religious traditions, Buddhism, Taoism, Shintoism, first hand could apply and get money to go and just spend a couple of months, like, on a spiritual journey. (laughs) So I remember being in that interview and actually saying to them, like, I'm an anthropologist. Um, I need you to know, I'm not going to lie, like, I primarily want to study Tibetan language in a rigorous, and Tibetan, you know, Buddhism in a rigorous scholarly way. I'm not just on some kind of hippy-dippy joy right here. Um, I remember being quite like firm about that, but they they granted me the, the bursary and I was able to go to India for the first time in my life. Um, and I immediately began sort of just having relaxed conversation classes. You know, I had some basis because I had studied by myself for a little while. Um, and then when I decided to come to the US, a big draw of that was the prospect of being able to have lessons. So I had some also some conversation classes with a Lama in Boulder only for a few months. And then tried to sort of just be doing all my grad school stuff while also, um, you know, improving my Tibetan through self-study. But I also, up until that point, had only really focused on on colloquial Tibetan. And I personally believe that if you're going to learn Tibetan, It's just a no-brainer. You have to learn to speak and read. Um, But I say that because there's a common tendency in in Buddhist studies and Tibetan studies where many scholars learn to read classical literary Tibetan, which is admittedly different to spoken Tibetan, which comes in many dialectal varieties. Um, And you can't just instantly jump. It's a bit like Arabic. You can't instantly jump. From text to speaking, or vice versa, many native Tibetans who are fluent in in their spoken languages are illiterate or struggle with reading. So it's, you know, I mean, it's not um, it's not that it just happens. I prioritized speaking Tibetan, but I was still frustrated. Um, only when I started my my long stint of fieldwork for about two years, just under two years. Um, Starting from the beginning of 2015, and I was really just in a position to be in in Tibetan spaces and communities in India and Nepal. Then my um, Tibetan really improved, uh, but I had this interesting moment where I realized, oh, I'm 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 deigning to 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 do research research on um, uh, Tibetan esotericism and Vajrayana. But I don't even know how to read Tibetan. (laughs) When I arrived in the field, I still really struggled to read Tibetan. And I realized kind of with panic, I was like, lamas are not going to take me very seriously if I want to talk to them about their religious lives without being able to engage with texts the way they do. Um, But I had always sort of styled myself, an anthropologist, I'm not a textualist scholar. Um, So kind of with panic, a little into field work, I was like, "Oh." crap, I have to learn how to read Tibetan. So I really just taught myself how to read Tibetan. I never had formal classes in that. I read some books and and I really just started reading every day the little bits and pieces. Um, And I still consider my level of Tibetan, I, I do not consider myself to be fluent in Tibetan. I have not gone through, I would consider fluency in Tibetan to have been living in an exclusively Tibetan language environment on a day-to-day basis for several years. This is living in a monastery, for example. Um, And then also having had, I haven't had lessons in Tibetan composition. I don't know how to write good Tibetan. Um, So I'm, you know, and and there are many non-Tibetan scholars who are the same as me. Um, I, I'm no longer interested in pursuing an academic career or seeking jobs where I would be required to present myself as an expert. I work to the best of my ability in consultation with, you know, my teachers. Um, but I, you know, my spoken Tibetan was much better in 2016 than it is now because I'm not communicating every day, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, I would, I would say to people the same thing I'd say for learning any language, because, because Tibetan has an association, it's a sacred language, it's associated with this incredible profound centuries long tradition of spiritual knowledge, people get sort of weird ideas about that, that somehow the learning of it is equally miraculous or equally unique. If you're going to learn to read Tibetan suddenness, you, you should learn Tibetan the same way you should learn in Spanish, any language. Um, and uh, there, it is very interesting how people feel they can get away with having no familiarity with colloquial Tibetan or even Tibetans sometimes. No warmth or familiarity with Tibetans, but they can still sort of be familiar and warm towards texts. Um, which has never made sense to me, um, but, to an extent, it, you can get away with it. Um, so, so it's, a, it's a peculiar thing. We have people studying Tibetan language as if it were like Greek or Latin. Um, they sort of, when you sound some people out, they're sort of approaching the language as if there's no living community of users and speakers of these texts and, and words. And I just always thought that's so strange. Um, you know, a lot of people will freely say, I'm a convert. I'm, I'm, it's too much effort for me to learn to speak, to shoot the shit with, like, Tibetans in a bar in India. And anyway, that's not what I'm interested in. But I'm like, some of some of the great lamas who wrote your satan has shot this shit in the bar uh, themselves. Um, I don't know, it's an interesting thing. And I still consider myself a student of Tibetan language and culture, absolutely. It's part of the reason why I feel, felt so uncomfortable having got the PhD feeling like I then had to position myself as some, you know, for the sake of my career advancement, I had to then say, and yeah, I know a lot. I have a certain amount of expertise, but I would never take a job from a from a native Tibetan who was way more qualified than me and unfortunately tibetan studies is surprisingly untibetan as a as a discipline uh that's a whole other whole other story but um yeah i i, I didn't have a lot of formal uh, education in tibetan language i also learned tibetan to a large extent by teaching english to tibetans um, just for something to do, but also, you know, especially Tibetans who didn't know English at all would be, you know, I would then have to, you know, use my awful Tibetan to try to convey English to them. And and, and so, you know, there were a lot of ways that I, I learned. Um, But yeah, I mean, I encourage people to not forget that Tibetan is a language, a living language, and that immersion is always going to be the best way. Um, above and beyond the formal learning of grammar categories. You know, it's an interesting thing, like Tibetans will often say, if you ask them, do you know Tibetan, you know, they're fluent native speakers, and they'll say, no, I don't know Tibetan. What they mean is they haven't studied sort of, you know, like grammar, they haven't been in a monastic context and studied formal grammar texts. Um so there's levels of language and levels of authority just to you know that go along with it. Um, I'm more of the school that when you were a little baby, you were absorbing an understanding of the context in which the subjunctive mood are used in the English language without ever having to know what the subjunctive mood was. And in my experience of teaching um, uh Tibetans English, many Tibetans were really very good at English grammar, but they couldn't speak English Um, They knew what the subjunctive mood was because they'd carried textbooks English Oxford English textbooks around like talismans for years just like I did with my Tibetan textbooks um but ultimately, if you want to really understand a language, you can't just be looking at a dictionary or translating technical term after technical term. Sometimes you can get away with that, translating suddenness, which have very clipped, concise language that's highly jargon-laden. But that's not really understanding a language. Um, I wish more sort of trans- self-declared translators or consumers of classical Tibetan would. Would allow themselves the pleasure of of learning Tibetan as a as a living language. So that's that's my um, that's my, my spiel.
0: <laughs> that's a fantastic, man. So you mentioned you speak several other languages. Oh, all oh, badly. <laughs> so that's all right. What, what's what's the list? I speak
1: English. I consider English to be the only language I speak fluently, and I speak it fluently too much. <laughs> um, uh, I I have a degree. Uh, an undergraduate degree in French language and literature, but I've never had the um, the opportunity to to live for a long period of time in a Francophone country. Um, I know Afrikaans because everyone knows Afrikaans in South Africa. I studied in school. I studied Hebrew and Arabic and Latin for several years, but those have all dribbled out my ear. I also learned isiZulu and Asa, um Two indigenous south african languages um which have also dribbled out my ear and i sort of reached a point of proficiency and never went beyond it um so i only really would say i know tibetan english and french um i have studied many languages
0: i picked up a bit of koso when i was in um i stayed in Khalicha for a period of time so i picked up a bit of what is it uh nkosi igamalam steve something like this (laughs) nice yeah that's wonderful. That's a, such a fascinating language, Kosa. Yeah, or,
1: I, I love languages as an entry point into worlds and cosmologies because I guess I'm I'm a natural anthropologist, you know, and I really believe that um, uh, that it's a, just a, an amazing, like magical, transformative way to to occupy alternative positions and vantage points on reality. Yeah, really, um, it's interesting. My linguist friends will often say. Um, you know, they speak very guardedly and sort of hesitantly about what anthropologists call the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, which you may be familiar with. It's the idea that the language that you speak can actually influence how you perceive reality. Um, and it's it's kind of a battleground. It, it was the reason that uh, anthropology and linguistics kind of split dis- as, as disciplines to, to a certain extent. You know, on the one hand, you have universal grammar. On the other hand you have this more kind of like relativist take and there's kind of been a revival of, of superior wolf thinking it was also the main plot line of the movie Arrival with Amy Adams you know the idea that if aliens came and we learned their language and they didn't exist in, in regular space-time maybe we could also not exist in regular space-time linear space-time so it's funny because cultural anthropologists even if it's sort of unproven beyond their personal experience every one of them i know is like yeah of course this would be a worth hypothesis has credibility of course learning another language immerses you in an alternative world that will transform your perception are you, are you kidding me <laughs> so it's funny how our disciplines have just sort of different feelings about that but i really do i really am inclined towards and a- a- amy adams squid alien squid approach to language Um, especially if you're trying to learn a spiritual tradition, which is so much about felt sense and transforming perception.
0: And the means of transmission of that particular, uh, you know, the one we're talking about, through oral transmission, through recitation, through memorization, a rich textual tradition, language is is a large part of the means of, of the transmission and practice of that tradition.
1: Right. In tantric traditions, the letters exist within the subtle channels. The letters exist as cosmological forces. Seed syllables are real potencies, responsive, sentient forces in in the world and in your own being. Um, it's hard sometimes for people to fully sort of grasp, the if they're moving from a context where they haven't grown up with kind of like alphabet mysticism, like we find in Judaism, uh, Buddhism, and Hinduism. It can be be hard to sort of overemphasize how much language is. You know, understanding something like the Tarama tradition or um, uh, certain Vajrayana practices more generally, without sort of reorienting your relationship to what language and speech actually is. uh, it's a whole other world view about what what words even are. Um, but now I'm, I'm going on an anthropological tangent.
0: <laughs> it is something that's in, of course, the Western tradition, this, this idea of logos and so yes. on. But it's but it's not prominent in the culture of our Western religion, I think, these days. It's, it's not emphasized.
1: Yeah, for sure. I always say to people like, you know studying hebrew and studying kabbalah you know there's this book kabbalistic text bahir, the book of of glare or brightness and the the name of the book bahir starts with the second light of the hebrew alphabet Beit, um and a lot of the discussion in the text is why does the hebrew bible sorry that's a terrible term hebrew bible why does the torah begin with um uh the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and not the first. If it's you know the the beginning of all things and the be all and end, or why why B and not A? And so there's this soaring philosophical investigation, this mystical uh, uh, excursion that the, the, the you know that we see in this text, which I guess to one person might seem like the most egregious example of um, you know, apologetics. the the craziest, the most crazy version of uh, what could we call it like uh, obsessive compulsive religious disorder. Like you're so obsessed with this book that you're disturbed by the fact that it begins with B and not A and you need to account for this. But when you read that book and you see what stunning insights about the nature of being are revealed through that that exercise, it's just remarkable. you know, I mean, rabbis talk about having to, 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 to look at the the negative space formed by Hebrew letters as well as the shape of of, of the visible ink, um, and and how how both teach us something. You know, I mean, it's it's a it's a level of uh, of relating to the written word that yeah is hard for people to grasp and appreciate if they haven't grown up with the language that exists on multiple levels and, and has transformative
0: power fascinating well i think we should probably get round to talking about your dissertation should not we yeah. <laughs> yeah that's terrific so the, the title of your dissertation is white robes matted hair tibetan tantric householders moral sexuality and the ambiguities of esoteric buddhist expertise in exile by dr ben philip joffy it's a short title um Yes. So um I thought actually I'd read your abstract just to position it and save you a bit of legwork so we can go into some of the my questions about it rather, rather than just having having you explain it. So um I can read the extract or you uh, abstract or you could read the abstract. What would you prefer?
1: I don't know, would you like me to read it <laughs> with my South African inflections? Okay, so the abstract says this dissertation offers an ethnographic study of nakpa and Nokma, uh, which is male and female terms, Tibetan Buddhist non-monastic, non-celibate tantric yogis and yoginis living in the Tibetan diaspora. Like monks and nuns, nakpa and Nokma are professionally religious, yet unlike their monastic counterparts, they can marry, have families, and pursue worldly work. Living in the village, like ordinary laypeople, but also spending much of their time in retreat or working as ritual specialists for hire, nakpa and Ngakma occupy a shifting third space between monastic renunciation and worldly attachments. Based on roughly five years of fieldwork research conducted in Tibetan and Tibetan Buddhist communities in India, Nepal, northeastern Tibet, and the United States, this thesis explores how Ngakpa and Ngakma's Historically decentralized, morally ambiguous esoteric expertise has become implicated in various projects of cultural preservation and reform for exiled Tibetans. Even as it, their expertise has come to circulate and have meaning well beyond the purview of ethnic Tibetan communities and interests. Chapters 1 to 5 offer an overview of how Nakpa and Nakma and and Ngakma's orientations have been pinned down or have failed to be pinned down in exile via language, gender divisions of labor, in physical space and permanent institutions, through hair, clothing and embodied comportment, and as part of new family and career trajectories. Chapters 6 to 9 examine how contentious esoteric Tantric yogic practices associated with sexuality and Tibetan medicine in particular are being popularized and reframed in exile in new ways and for new audiences as part of increasingly transnational networks of exchange. In these chapters I underscore the polysemous quality of tantric practices and reflect on my own collaborations with the Tibetan Nakba doctor to translate and share information on Tibetan tantric yogic practices more widely. In conclusion I assess trends and quandaries that have dominated the academic study of secrecy and esoteric religions and highlight the implications and value of an ethnographic approach to researching tantric traditions.
0: Thank you very much. It's an absolutely fascinating topic. Your research spanned several years. Could you give us a, a sort of bird's eye view, overview of your research period and the different phases that it went through? I mean, I know that just the bureaucracy involved in organizing visas and so on was extremely challenging for you. But can you give a sort of a bit of a a summary of the entire process and say?
1: Uh, I'm not going to go into great detail about the the visa (laughs) issues. Um, I'll just say that, um, you know, it's it's challenging when you're an anthropologist because normally what happens with PhDs, let's say... um, you're a chemist or you're a zoologist or a biologist and you're doing a phd you're doing you know unique research maybe you 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 know like all other phd students including cultural anthropologists social anthropologists you do several years of uh, of classes graduate level courses you do literature review Um, you get your technical training and then you write your dissertation once your proposals and such have been um, approved. If you're a zoologist, um, you might be doing research in a lab on campus um, while you're also working as a TA or or doing other things. So, you know, that shortens the length of PhDs. Because in contrast, if you're a cultural anthropologist, you do all that stuff. You do your language training or your technical training, methodological training, your uh, theory classes. um, And then you have to write proposals for long-term fieldwork. It's unusual for anyone to write a PhD uh, in cultural anthropology in, in, the United, in the United States, that's based on anything less than one full year of immersive fieldwork. And that fieldwork could be in, your, in a home community in the US, or it could be anywhere in the world. It could be virtual, digital ethnography, but it's usually that length of time, and usually much longer, because anthropology graduate students are doing like Preliminary exploratory, you know, visits to the field over several years, um, and so then if you're not at an Ivy League university and you need to self fund, you know, anywhere from one to two years of research, that also takes time. So you're often waiting for at least a year to hear about whether you even got the funding. Um, unfortunately, many universities like mine. My- previous one also have strange that disadvantage cultural anthropologists so they say that once you have once you're abd once you're all but dissertation as a phd student you're just writing the dissertation you're not allowed to take time off from your program which is terrible um, if you're a cultural anthropologist because we become abd through our departments then we, you know, seek funding or hopefully have it already. And then we, we go off for two years and then we only come back and write. So my situation was um, challenging because I was a South African national on a U.S. student visa, having to juggle and maintain requirements for that visa status, which typically mean that you have to like be full time enrolled in the U.S. Um, jumping through certain hoops, while also trying to get research visas to do research in India, Nepal, and Tibet, Um, and be away from the U.S. for months and months. Um, So it was a bit of a visa juggle, and I had a very protracted process that I described in the acknowledgements briefly uh, in the dissertation, just relating to getting permission to even arrive in the field. I initially thought that I was going to study Tibetan medicine when I first got uh, to my department. And then through conversations with my advisor, I realized, not knowing anything about Tibetan studies, that uh, Tibetan medicine had become quite a hot topic in the last five or so years. And she cautioned me against studying that if I didn't have a sense of how I would insert myself into these existing academic conversations. When I was in the program building up, I sort of developed research plans around studying uh, Tibetan spirit mediums at various levels of institutionalization. And my early preliminary visits to the field were sort of focused around that. And then for various reasons, I realized that some of my uh, projected proposals might not work out or I didn't feel comfortable pursuing that. Like so many anthropologists, I just sort of serendipitously fell upon um, some sort of other ideas. Um, We always say in anthropology, you you know, you defend and you write this research grant, you get given all this money and then you go to the field and then everyone's like, oh, that's dumb. (laughs) The actual people whose lives you want to learn about are like, yeah, that's not important. Or no, that's (laughs) we're not interested in that or like what we're really concerned about is this or where you go and your field site no longer exists or like many of my friends you know covid-19 uh global pandemic happens in the middle of their field work and you have to leave your field site any number of contingencies so i um spent many years trying to work out what I would study before i you know started the field work because that's how it works um i wrote a research proposal pitching the idea that I would study Nakba, non celibate, non-monastic Tantric ritual specialists or householders, um, I sometimes sort of half-jokingly call them Tantric wizards. Um, uh, I would study them as a kind of practitioner um, and look at the way that they were relating to sort of institutionalized, centralized power and authority. And how I was going to do that, you always have to have a kind of real-world set of field sites as an anthropologist. So I had just, in a trip to India, stumbled upon this um, Nakba Jatsang, um, uh, a kind of tantric college or gompa, like monastery temple um, in McLeod, Ganj, just outside of McLeod, Ganj in North India, in Machu Pradesh, which had been founded by a very charismatic Nakba, <clears throat> who um, ended up becoming a kind of go-to weather controller. This is a common uh, sort of job that Napa do in Tibetan Himalayan societies. He became the, his name was Yeshid Dorje he became the um, primary weather controller, sort of helping the Dalai Lama out um, during events and things like this. Um, And I visited his uh, gompa just randomly, met some people there and thought, I subsequently then found out that some stuff had been written about his life in English. And I was just very struck by his trajectory of having been a wandering chid practicing yogi exorcist to issued his own sort of shoehorning into a kind of monastic, bureaucratic role, and then to see him come into exile and then be encouraged by the Dalai Lama to build his own monastic institution. I was fascinated by this and I sort of built some theoretical interventions that anthropologists might be interested in around this. Then I had like a long delay trying to get permissions and visas and eventually arrived in McLeod Gunch to start the clock of my long term fieldwork at this institution. And when I got to the institution, it had languished significantly compared to even this sort of level of languishing that it had been in when I first visited in 2010. Um, so, you know, like I said, not an uncommon thing for anthropologists, but still very nerve-wracking. I had this vision of being in a vibrant institution, a place where Nakba would be. You know, I mean, one of the challenges that I discuss at length in the, in the thesis is that part of nappa sort of unique way of living and orientations is that they they don't live full time in large scale institutions like monks do they may be in charge of institutions or group together at specific important moments to do collective ritual and things like that but they also have families they do other kinds of work They might be alone in retreat or in group retreat for periods of time. So they're they're sort of shifty in that way. So a big challenge methodologically for me was like, okay, I'm going to study Nakba, but I don't know any Nakba (laughs) closely. I don't have a teacher who I can sort of, I can't easily insert myself into any one Nakba's life. So I thought, okay, maybe let me, Let me build my research around a charismatic, you know, deceased Nakba who had a sort of community role, who's well remembered by many people, who has living relatives, who who has an institution. Uh, This was my workaround, and I thought that there would be Nakba and monks doing retreat there because that was sort of the vision of of this. um, uh, Sunam uh, Kagyiling, the, the, the particular Ngakpa center that um, Nyingma Gompa, that uh, Yeshidur Jirumshe was encouraged to develop by His Holiness the Dalai Lama in the kind of, you know, like late 70s, 80s. Um, yeah, and, you know, uh, I just, I felt very adrift. I, I didn't know how to insert myself into Ngakpa's lives. Uh, and I also realized, like many anthropologists do, that I'm probably not as great at fieldwork and interviewing as I thought I was. Or at least you realize I'm, I'm quite a, you know, a verbose, confident person in English. But I don't like barging into Lama's lives and demanding that they talk to me. Um, and I, I, I struggled with that aspect of fieldwork. I didn't really feel like I deserved to be human, really. Who am I? You know, like what relationships, existing relationships of trust and care did I have that, that would sort of justify me me asking about, you know, esoteric uh, religious practices. So I, I really struggled, like a lot of anthropologists do, and I tried in the early months of my fieldwork to just learn as much as I could from as many people as possible. So I think you'll see when you read the dissertation, I really draw a lot on the perspectives of people who are maybe not the kinds of uh, informants that you might think are the primary people you would ask about tantric buddhist practices you know I, i wanted to include the perspectives of ordinary lay tibetans who were not trained in tantra um you know because often if you ask questions about buddhism many tibetans will tell you well i'm not a lama i'm not going to just speak on that topic casually, like many Western converts will do. Um, uh, I, you know, like speak to the the authority. And then maybe the authority will say, I'm not the best lama for that. So I actually refer to it as the defer, I think I call it the deferral of, it's a kind of recognizable pattern, the deferral of expertise. Um, So yeah, I was a bit at a loss. I thought, okay, well, my field site's not what I thought it would be. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I don't know if I'm in the right place. I don't know if I need to be somewhere else. You know, like, why are you here? You should go to the Nepal border and go to villages where hereditary Nakba are the dominant religious specialists. This is a Galupa place. You know, and I said to them, well, this is why I wanted to study this institution situated here. Um, and I'm interested in Ngakba and how they work in environments other than the kind of classical village ritual specialist scene. But yeah, it was a challenge. Um, and then a real um, turning point for me was, <clears throat> well, I should say before that, it, it was good though because it 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 helped me to sort of cast a wide net, and and recognize the broader context. Recognize that if you want to understand the social life of tantric Buddhist expertise, you don't just have to talk to the Tantric ritual specialists. Um, there is a there, there is a wider life in which practices and expertise and representations of religious authority or, or forms of knowledge circulate. And it, it involves people other than just the sort of obvious holders of those knowledge, the people that you often get deferred to, you know. So, I don't know, maybe you agree, maybe not. You can see that in the dissertation, I try to show that. Um, And it was partly because of my own experiences in the field, my own trajectory. And then I would say a real turning point was when I met my teacher, Dr. Nida um, Chenotsan, who's a Ngapa from Tibet. Um, And he's sort of one of that generation of younger Tibetan lamas who've moved directly from kind of like uh from from their their birth uh place in tibet to uh europe or sort of not had not lived in in the exile communities in nepal in india in the same way um but i first encountered him through his his writing um he's probably written more for general audiences about not about the kinds of knowledge that they possess and of advocating for the value of this knowledge today, and for its its uh, preservation, uh, possibly more than anybody else. And he and his brother, <clears throat> in Tibet, run an NGO um, that works with the, the very important and kind of long standing Nakba uh, community in Rebgong, in uh, Amdo, northeastern Tibet. And so I was aware of him and his writing. And as my Tibetan reading skills got better I made sure to read what he had written about Nakba and I was really amazed um, and appreciative, I was like wow here's someone who's doing something interesting Um, a native scholar practitioner speaking for his tradition but not necessarily for other Nakba in religious texts written for elites but for a, a, a wider public um, you know, responding to misunderstandings and critiques. And I just assumed that he still lived in, in Namdo. Um I was not aware of the fact that he had many students around the world and had been living in Italy for a long time. And then through a very sort of serendipitous series of events, I was able to uh, make virtual and then direct physical contact with him when he visited India. We really liked one another. Um, he, he has, I think, a kind of ethnographic sensibility towards his own tradition. Um, and I was happy to interact with a, a, a Tibetan scholar and practitioner who felt that sort of my angle on things as a scholar was aligned with his interests. He liked the translations that I had just done of my own accord, of some excerpts of his writing. He liked the way I had framed them and contextualized them, contrasted them with neo-tantric practices. And so we developed a working relationship which has just continued to grow since 2016. Um, And I now work for a, a publishing company, Buddhist publishing company, that we started to share translations uh, of Dr. Ninda's um, writing um, and uh, yeah uh, you know I've received he you know he was so open about talking about things like uh, sexual yoga practices or or areas of Vajrayana expertise which not many people know about or have grounds to speak about and he's an unusual figure because he really feels that it's more beneficial to maybe uh, talk more openly about these things, to provide people some sort of frameworks and context and space for understanding these practices so that if they do pursue them further, they'll do so in, in the right way and will be able to identify what are misrepresentations and misuses of uh, these ideas and practices. So. Um, We really are in a moment, I mentioned it briefly in the dissertation toward the end, we're in a moment right now of a kind of opening up around the sharing of uh, esoteric uh, uh, Tantra Buddhist knowledge by Tibetan lineage masters. Um, We're in also a moment of sort of anxiety around that. Um, And so for me, my research took a very different turn. When I met Nida and became associated with him, uh, I became I started looking because he's a Tibetan medical doctor and Nakpa. I started looking more at the connection between traditional Tibetan medicine and tantric expertise. Um, uh, he introduced me to the lineage uh, that he's most involved with as personally as a practitioner. That he teaches most broadly around the world, the Yutak um, which is a kind of uh, revelatory tradition from the uh, uh, 12th century that was is essentially Vajrayana for doctors. It's some um, kind of working physicians uh, teachings on uh, householder tantric practice primarily. So that was also really fat I mean. Before I met Nida, I had no idea that, that such things even existed. Um, he was kind enough to, you know, he, he wanted someone he liked and trusted to help him with translating and disseminating material in the right sort of way. Um, I was only too happy to learn from him and continue to learn from him every day. Um, so our partnership in the second half of my dissertation, I sort of, I build the chapters around talking about my own trajectory, um, doing the sort of translation work. What was at stake at sharing in sharing information about certain topics like sexual yoga, because we've we've been working on a lot of projects to make information about this accessible, um, and to address issues around sexual abuse in the name of tantra and so on, which are are, are things that um, I was very, you know, concerned about as a, as a native practitioner and lineage holder. So the, the, the latter part of the dissertation really uh, focuses more squarely on sexual yoga practices, on our translation publication work, on other, um, you know, I have two whole chapters about, about other translation projects in Tibetan exile related to sexological expertise, uh, that is both Tantric and kind of not Tantric at the same time and I really get into that because these were also just things that fell into my lap. I, I met people who were talking about sexual health in exile, who we were talking about uh, issues about abuse in the name of Tantra, who we were talking about celibacy versus non-celibacy, all issues that are deeply uh, historically intertwined with the 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 personhood, the subjectivity of, of Nakba. So my relationship with um, Nida as my teacher and research collaborator became really key. I don't think I'm alone in that as a scholar. I think that Buddhist textualist scholars have the same experiences, but they just don't write about it in their published work. If yeah. you you know scratch the surface of any um, textualist scholar and you'll find Either a whole lot of train wrecks or a whole lot of burnt bridges, and you know, damaged relationships. As you know, or you'll you'll find like key, uh, significant partnerships that have really shaped and enabled research. But often those things get sort of uh, they get bracketed or even actively denied. Or or or, or, or not written about. Whereas our training as anthropologists is like, no, you, you lay your cards out on the table, you demonstrate the social processes and embodied relationships through which you came to learn something, through which you entered into people's lives, by means of which you experienced and understood things. So we, we believe that identifying our positionality and, our, um, and those intersubjective relationships by, by, by talking directly about them, we actually add rigor and insight to our scholarship rather than somehow turning our scholarship into anecdotal navel-gazing or subjective uh, travel writing.
0: Like an eat, pray, love sort of thing. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that, that is the, the tension, of course, on the one level regarding bias, an attempt, I think, in some disciplines to remove bias by removing oneself. The other aspect of it, of course, is part of the philosophical underpinnings of your discipline, is that the context of one's bias matters. Academically, it's not only uh, an issue of disclosing bias, it's also an issue of actually the whole interrelationship is part of the discipline.
1: Knowledge is always produced within a sort of social context of interaction um, that shifts over time and place. Um, And so in anthropology, we believe it's our job to kind of point that out and then think about it, think about what
0: that means. So perhaps as a last question, one of the interesting methodological challenges you faced was this term scholar practitioner. In the course of your research, you did have a changing relationship to that term or you were placed differently within, across that spectrum. And you write here, during the first year of my fieldwork, I was a knowledgeable, but uninitiated outsider one who likewise occupied the often awkward position of profane ethnographer. Unlike Mahomet, you talked uh, previously about uh, Lilith Mahomet, who'd done research into Freemasonry in Italy. Um, unlike Mahomet, however, I was regularly assumed to already be an initiated practitioner of the esoteric traditions which I was studying. Both lay in vocationally religious Tibetans in McLeod Ganj and Kathmandu, my two primary field sites, tended to assume that white travelers to these places who were dedicating considerable time to studying Tibetan language, culture and history were converts to Tibetan Buddhism. One of the areas in which your your evolution in terms of being a scholar practitioner uh, came into relief was to do with Wang or Tantric Empowerments. And, And here you write, when I began my doctoral dissertation fieldwork, I knew that attending an empowerment ceremony was how one became initiated into secret mantra or Tantric Buddhism. And so I avoided going to such events because I wasn't sure I was ready to do this. I wanted to properly understand Wang and what it implied before I considered participating. So I'm wondering if you could talk a bit more about Wang in general, uh, both in terms of how it's traditionally viewed and how it's actually applied today, and also how your personal position on the subject evolved over the course of the research and why it was such a thorny question for you.
1: Yeah, well, Wang... You know, I mean, I go on after those lines that you read to to then sort of play devil's advocate with myself and say, well, you know, Wang is not um, some exclusive event in Tibetan and Himalayan communities. Empowerment ceremonies or initiations, uh, you know, I mean, I mentioned, I think that the, the last color chakra empowerment set of empowerments that the Dalai Lama gave. Uh, you know 80,000 people participated uh you know technically speaking one ceremonies are the entry point into highest yoga tantra practices into the most antinomian secret um practices of vajrayana but anybody who's you know remotely familiar with tibetan buddhism will know that it's not hard to Attend an empowerment ceremony. You can attend an empowerment ceremony via webcast. Uh, many lamas have sort of made this innovation where they've said, if your motivation is correct and your view is correct, uh, just watching an empowerment happen miles away on your computer screen is could be equivalent to physically being present and consuming uh, consecrated uh, samaya substances and so on, and, and taking. Uh, vows with, with lamas. And the thing is, people also are engaging with these activities on different levels. The overwhelming majority of uh, Tibetans and, and Himalayan kind of uh, heritage Buddhists who go to empowerment ceremonies are not intending to practice the sadhanas for that highest yoga tantra yidam four times a day, every day for the rest of their life until they achieve Buddhahood for the sake of all sentient beings. But they are going there to you know, uh, see the Lama, be in the Lama's presence, receive blessings from the Lama, um, make good I- I- karmic imprints, and so on. Any number of reasons. And they occupy different positions and relationships to the mysteries involved that are being transmitted or or maybe not being transmitted. Um, I mentioned in the dissertation how Nida himself often um, sort of points this out by um, kind of joking with uh, uh, Buddhist converts. Uh, when he teaches on karma mudra, on uh, partner and sexual yoga practice, he'll say, how many people here um, received, you know, one uh, for a yidam, high yoga tantra yidam? You know, people put up their hand and then he says, which one? And they disclose, and then he points out to them sometimes that... Um, you know, there's no particular reason why you need to disclose that fact. Um, it's You don't need to be telling everyone what yidams you've received. That's a whole other thing. But um, they'll say, okay, well, all right, who's received the initiation or empowerment for sexual yoga practice? And, you know, guaranteed, almost every single time, people, people are silent, um, which is funny because... Historically, t- transmissions and explanations and uh, em- empowerments for sexual yoga practice are they're baked into to the, the, the sort of fourfold model of of, of wang. Um, it's just that people didn't even really know what they were receiving when they received it, or or you know the extent to which the wang embodies really a kind of a to z of their practice and path. Um, and there's various reasons for that, and we can wring our hands about that, or we can say as anthropologists, look, the meaning of one or its significance is not just in this Protestant sense of, you know, one operates on many levels of, of participation and, and involvement. So that's why I mention in that section at the beginning of the dissertation, I say, well, it's kind of was a bit ridiculous and precious of me to be saying, like, I'm not going to go to, I'm purposefully not going to go to Wong, when people are carting their sleeping babies and dogs there freely. And there's any number of people there who are not going to technically do what they're supposed to do as a result of of receiving that that initiation. Um, But I think for me, it was just a personal choice. It was about me grappling with my positionality. And I knew from before I entered the field, and I mentioned it in the dissertation in these terms, that anthropology for me was kind of a probationary period. From I was still in South Africa, I said, I will learn to read Tibetan. I will learn to, to understand Tibetan texts. I will get a cultural liter- and historical literacy because that will better inform any decision I may or may not make. In the future, to become a full-time practitioner, I want to know what it's going to mean for me to appropriate appropriately uh, to, to to interact with with another um, community's uh, spiritual, cultural traditions in a in a, an appropriate fashion. And so, what I had always, what I often said to people was, I said. And, you know, maybe I was projecting, but I, I think I I, I saw a, a, a breath of relief sometimes when I said this, because so many Tibetans assumed I was inji nangba, you know, um, a, a, a white passing Buddhist, or inji nangba nyumba, you know, like a crazy white Buddhist. Um, uh, inji inji nyomba is something you hear very often, um, and and you know I I. Ass- I think a lot of people assumed, well, why would I be here studying Buddhism if if I wasn't a Buddhist? And then, you know, Lamas would say, What the hell are you doing? You know, like studying this, but you're not gonna apply it to to benefit yourself and other people? What a waste of time. So I was kind of in the in, in the midst of all that and I would say to Tibetans who asked, I'd say, Well, I'm not really a Buddhist, but I might become a dedicated practitioner, but I want to first check you know i want to first learn more i want to investigate and that was something they could understand because it's something that the dalai lama has has encouraged for several years he himself has actually quite strenuously discouraged foreigners from rushing to convert to tibetan buddhism uh, as a replacement for investigating their relationship with their own heritage and traditions and religious upbringing and maybe trying to heal and repair that, um, and he often tells people like, "Don't rush into this because it, you want it to be something different or, or, or you know, like rem, remediate, to, remedial, you know." He, he'll say like, "What's the best religion?" People will ask him. He "Your religion," <laughs> you know, which is a fantastic response. And so I was aware of all these things. Um, I'd also met a lot of. Um, this is to be completely honest. I had met a lot in America and South Africa, a lot of Ingi, not only white uh, seeming but, but non-Tibetan converts to Tibetan Buddhism, who who had awful attitudes towards Tibetan people, um, who were you know low-key racists and had enormous superiority complexes towards ordinary tibetans and how they approached buddhism and i was just maybe to a fault really not wanting to reproduce those kinds of really fascinating but strange positions um, and sort of subjectivities that people had um, while also being open to and curious and and compassionate towards the challenges of um, of being a non-heritage Buddhist, of being a convert, trying to, you know, internalize and apply and make real and relevant uh, practices that came from one historical cultural context that you're totally divorced from. So yeah, I was I was um, spending a lot of time quite being quite uh, careful about um, not. Uh, positioning myself as an insider when I wasn't, but it also was pretty simple to like the too long didn't read version was I would never met uh, a Lama, I'd never met a guru that I really connected with or trusted or, or felt that I met lovely gurus who I thought were amazing and who I interviewed and developed friendships with, but I didn't feel like I could imagine them being my teacher. And then when I met Nida, that changed. And I told myself previously, um, right from the start, you'll become a practitioner when you have some understanding and context, and if and when you meet a teacher, um, a guide that you trust. And then so I guess by 2016, both those things happened. And now I'm much more free and relaxed about calling myself a a Buddhist.
0: but it, it took a while yeah so ben this has been a totally thrilling conversation i've read your dissertation a couple of times now and it's it is just so so, uh, so fascinating whereabouts can people uh, read that or or where can they reach you if they want to find out more about some of the things we've discussed of course i'd like to have you on to to dive in to now more of the nitty-gritty Details and I have several questions about the contents, and perhaps we'll do that in future podcasts. But already, if people's interest is piqued, where can they read your dissertation, and where can they contact you?
1: Yeah, um, the dissertation is online, open access. So um, honestly, it's through ProQuest. But I would just, I would recommend just typing my name. Um, maybe you can put the full title of the dissertation or a link to the ProQuest. Um, site so people can read it in their browsers Uh, it's 530 plus pages so maybe not but uh, you can download it as a pdf as well Um, and uh, i also have a personal sort of blog for research and uh, working translation and reflections that's called uh, perfumed skull so that's www.perfumed with a d skull alloneword.com, um, I need to update it and add some new content, but yeah, there's lots of stuff to do with um, just things I get fixated on relation to Tibetan Buddhism, Tibetan culture, esoteric religions, uh, Western uh, occultism, magic. Um, I also am now working pretty much full-time for our uh, Buddhist publishing company, which is called Sky Press Books. Um, and so, Dr. Nida, my colleague Christiana and I, have we've put out several books connected to the Yutok Nintek, about medicine, Ngakpa, healing practices, um, sexual yoga, over the last uh, four years or so now, and we have several more publications in the pipeline, and we're actually just about to launch a new uh, associated blog with Sky Press books. Um, we will be having weekly updates of uh, translations of articles, uh, curated resources of videos and uh, interviews. We, we want it to be a kind of uh, intermediary space so that if people are about to buy any of the books uh, that we've put together with Dr. Nita, um or have read them already, this will be kind of extra supplementary content and work in progress. So, That'll be coming out soon um, in the next week or two. Um, And so people can sort of expect more content there, similar stuff to what I've already put on my blog, but more specifically related to our publishing company. Um, So yeah. Dr. Ben
0: Joffe, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast.